Hi, friends. It's Christy Blackburn, Davy's wife and co-founder of Nothing Is Wasted. If you guys have been around here for a while at Nothing Is Wasted, you probably heard a bit about my personal journey towards living a healthy lifestyle for myself and my family. So as a physician assistant, I've watched so many people overtaken by chronic illness, disease, unhealth. It was also a part of our own family's journey with an autoimmune disorder that prompted me to take a closer look at the everyday choices we were making and how those decisions were impacting our health. So perhaps you too have found yourself stuck in a cycle of frustration and shame and defeat as you struggle with chronic health conditions, fatigue, or yo-yo dieting. Because I know how difficult that path can be, I wanted to create a resource to empower others like you to take back your health. That's why I'm so excited to invite you to join me in January for my upcoming live online virtual wellness course called Back to the Garden, Holistic Living the Way God Intended. This eight-week course is not your typical health class. I'm so, so passionate about blending both scriptural truths with the scientific facts that help us live a holistic, intentional life when it comes to our whole selves. We want to get to the root of wellness by taking you back to the garden, the first Garden of Eden, and look at the principles God gave us when it came to caring for our health, mind, body, and soul. In this course, you'll learn holistic, God-given rhythms for living an intentional life, including rhythms around food, around your emotional and spiritual health, and your environment. This course won't prescribe you a one-size-fits-all solution, but will instead give you the tools you need for creating your own simple, easy-to-implement plan that is adaptable to your family's lifestyle. But more than that, you'll get the knowledge you need to make informed decisions and live in freedom when it comes to your health. While I'd love to offer this resource to everyone, I want to be sure to give you the space to interact with me personally and get your questions answered, as well as connect with others walking a similar journey towards health, which is why I've limited the number of spots available for this course. So from now until November 15th, you can register for the Back to the Garden Holistic Living the Way God Intended course by going to www.linenroots.com course. If you've been overwhelmed with all the information on health and wellness and have wondered how to make the changes in the right direction, this course is for you. Don't let overwhelm stop you from taking back your health and learning the God-given rhythms for living an intentional life. Make plans to join me and others just like you this January as we go back to the garden. Welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, where we believe that no matter what you've gone through in life, God is inviting you to partner with Him to take back your story. On this podcast, we have inspiring conversations with people who are doing just that. And now, your hosts, Davy Blackburn and Aubrey Sampson. Hello, welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. I'm Davey. And I'm Aubrey. And once again, we're so glad that you are with us today. And I know that, well, we're both excited about this one, but Davey, I know you're especially excited about this conversation because you got to sit down with Jerry Sitzer, who I don't know, you told me uh, before we were recording that his book, A Grace Disguised, after Amanda's death, a lot of people sent this to you. Yes, but yes. it was highly because so, yeah. I could see how that could be a turnoff. But for you, it was actually highly in a uh, highly influential book. Well, originally it was a turnoff. Yeah, that's the thing. Originally, <laughs> you get you get, and I and I can't speak for everybody, so I'm yeah. not telling you don't send people books, right? Yeah. Like I think it is important to, and you know, and I've got we've got a blog post on our website that says you know top the top books that I would refer mm-hmm. to people to in, in times like this. A Grace Disguise is definitely one of those. Yeah, it's probably one of the most prolific works I know, at least modern works. 
of someone who is still alive today talking yeah. about the loss um, of, of that kind of a, a nature. And so, but it, it was a turnoff initially until how, Aubrey, how many people sent me this book? Mm. It clued me into this must be an impactful book it's and not just meaningful. one of those cheesy, <laughs> cliche, yeah. you know, pithy kind yeah. of um, uh, grief books. It, yeah. It's unbelievable. And Jerry is even more incredible, right? Wow. Beyond. Beyond what he has, that what he's written about his own story. I mean, this man is a fascinating, mm. fascinating, brilliant man. Wow, unbelievable. Wow, he is um, a, a professor emeritus of theology and senior fellow at Whitworth University. Mm. Specializes in the history of Christianity, Christian spirituality, and religion in American public life. So, literally, you could just sit at his feet and listen to him for hours. Unbelievable. And part of his story, which we haven't said this, and I don't want to give away too much, but part of his story is, I mean, if if you're not familiar with him, a tragic car accident, one car accident took the life of his mom, his wife, and his four-year-old daughter. So So three generations. This man has known known grief and known God in his grief. And that's part of why we're really excited for you to... uh, to hear from him. Yeah. Hey, uh, Davey, yeah. before we go to your conversation, can I read a, a review? Yeah, would love that. Okay. Um, this is uh, a new review that we received in early September. Thank you, Nothing Is Wasted team, for creating such an incredible podcast. Every episode inspires me to seek the Lord and be closer to him than I was before. Whether you are just now exploring the claims of Christ or have been a Christian most of your life, you will walk away from each episode feeling refreshed and encouraged. Hmm. Love that. I love that. I love that they encapsulated both people who have been walking with the Lord Mm -hmm. for a while or just first exploring it. You know, we have this fundamental belief, Aubrey, that what nothing is wasted ministries is what we have kind of evolved into is we're, we're a discipleship ministry. Right. Right. You might look at our ministry and go, well, you're like a grief ministry or you're a trauma ministry or you're a pain. No, no, no. We're a discipleship ministry. Yeah. We just happen to intersect you in your greatest moments of crisis. That's right. And that happens to be, too, for most of us, if you're listening to this, you can resonate with this, the moments that we are most attuned to and open to the Lord's work in our life. Mm. Everything's been stripped back and we're going, all right, God, what do you want to do in me? Yeah. And then what do you want to do through me? Yeah. And so I love that. If you're here and you're brand new to just this whole faith thing, you're just exploring things, you're in the right place because we're going to wrestle with some very difficult questions. Yes, we are. That a lot of people, especially in faith communities, for whatever reason, they don't want to wrestle with. And it may, maybe you've been cynical of faith communities because of that, because you're going, I have life experiences that are not lining up with these huge existential questions that I have. Yeah. And um, man, I just, we're, we, we just want to encourage you. This is the safe place to wrestle. That's right. So, yeah, that's right. Jerry's going to help us wrestle in this conversation. This is, I'm telling you, we're going to ask some really deep questions here. So let's go ahead and take a, a listen to my conversation with Jerry Sitzer. Jerry, it's so great to have you on the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. Thanks for joining me. It is a pleasure, Davey. You know, um, I told you this off air, but I, I really want our community to know that your work, your life, your voice, your story has been so impactful for me. I can't tell you how many times people not only suggested, but also sent your book, A Grace Disguise, to me when I was walking through this horrific tragedy 
back in 2015. And, you know, for one, it provided a lot of uh, maybe it's just solidarity that somebody else had gone through something horrific as well and yeah. lost in the, you know, to the degree. And obviously we can't compare losses or pain or anything like that, but lost to a significant degree. But then two, what you brought out of that book and what you, the, the, the truth and the hope that you wrote through that in a very raw and real way that provided just so much comfort and a healing salve to my soul. And so thank you so much. This is such an honor to have this conversation with you. I'm excited to talk about, your story, your life, and this this new release, the 25th anniversary of A Grace Disguised. Um, so well, I know we're going to get into a whole lot of things as we talk yeah. through this. I look forward to it, too. Instant chemistry with you, so I can tell this is going to be a good conversation. <laughs> well, likewise, Jerry, I would love, you know, in case our community doesn't know you or your story, can you give us just kind of a brief synopsis that we can use as a springboard to talk about some of these really big truths that you uh, have wrestled with these profound insights that you have brought out in a grace disguised as well as some of your other works yeah i, I was a pastor for 10 years i married at a young age to linda i was uh, 21 at the time uh graduated from college went to fuller seminary was a pastor for 10 years then got my phd at the university of chicago and then took a job at whitworth university uh, teaching church history uh, we moved here in 1989 my wife Linda was a homeschooler and uh, a musician, professional musician. And we decided to do a, a field trip in 1991. I went to a Native American powwow. A faculty member at Whitworth was a member of that tribe. We had dinner with the tribal leaders, had a lovely time. Interestingly enough, the problem of alcohol came up hmm. in our conversation with tribal leaders. We attended the powwow after a dinner and then on our way home, uh, we were hit by a, a drunk driver who was going 85 miles an hour, mm. and uh, he jumped his lane, plowed straight on into us. In fact, his car cartwheeled over ours. And uh, we had four children at the time, eight, six, four, and two. My mother was visiting mm. us for uh, the weekend. She was in the car, too. And when the dust settled, uh, my mother, Grace, uh, was killed in the accident. My wife, Linda my first wife, and uh, my four-year-old daughter, Diana Jane. Uh, his wife also was killed, and she was nine months pregnant, and obviously the uh, baby died too. So it was really a, a horrific experience, uh, just incomprehensible, really. Um, I was injured, but not terribly bad. My two older children were injured, not terribly bad. My, my two-year-old was injured much more seriously, but he has since recovered. So in a moment of time, Davey, my entire world was turned upside down. Uh, interesting, just an anecdote. Um, we have, were at the scene of the accident. It was in rural, rural Idaho. So we were there for a long time. Hmm. And uh, um, then there was another uh, hour in the emergency vehicle to get to a, a larger hospital. And all four of us were together, this four survivors. And in that hour, I stared right at it and realized that my entire world would be permanently altered. Yeah. That this was just one of those big events that I could not get behind again. Yeah. That was a, a remarkable hour of reflection, probably the most rational hour I've ever had in my life, surprisingly. Wow. Because it was such an emotional kind of experience. Yeah. And then I got busy trying to figure out how to do life under a very different set of circumstances. Wow. 
Wow. Well, you know, uh, uh, that that was 30 some years ago. It was 30 right? years ago. In fact, we just observed the 30th anniversary last September 27th. Wow. I always observe it. You know, I'll write letters to yeah. the kids. Sometimes we get together. Uh, last uh, fall, I had lunch with my daughter and my son who live in town. My other son lives in Seattle. And we did a lot of reminiscing and laughing. And uh, it was uh, a very interesting conversation I hope we can return to because yeah. it was telling yeah. about kind of the long-term trajectory of a big, big loss like that. <clears throat> yeah. Well, that you know, it, it, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I'm sitting here as I'm I'm going okay. I get to sit in front of Jerry Sitzer and I get to ask him questions of this like 30 year span of walking this this journey, walking out this story. You know, I'm seven years into mine of kind of this new. I mean, I, I felt the exact same thing that you felt. This was so big. This was such a monumental turning point and an upending of my life that you couldn't help but go, okay, this is going to drastically change everything about everything of my life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For very obvious reasons, but then also you could tell kind of, you know, some of the, some of the more ethereal reasons, some of the more existential reasons you're like this, this, I can't be the same after this, but I was trying to think how in the world do I boil down, you know, 30 years for you into certain questions to ask, what did you glean from this? I feel like that's such a trite question. You know what I mean? So I'm wondering, because you 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 wrote two chapters, you've released two new chapters for the 25th anniversary yeah. edition of A Grace Disguised, and, and one of those has to do with this idea of looking back over a long period of time. Yeah, yeah, that's and right. I, and I'm curious, what is it about looking back over a long period of time that has also shifted kind of how how you look forward or, or your perspective, your view on your story? Why is that such a pivotal crucial thing. Well, you really named it, and that is the idea of story itself. So I'm going to give you an anecdote. Uh, when I had lunch with my uh, my daughter and son last September, uh, I asked them for the first time, this is the first time after the book, since the book came out, how they felt about me writing a book about this big experience of loss. At the time, you know, they were so young when I wrote it, that it would have been inappropriate for me to ask that question. And of course, the subjects of the book have come up a lot, but I, I finally looked right at, looked him right in the eye and said, how do you feel about this? My daughter, the oldest, said immediately, oh, it's been so meaningful for, I mean, millions of people now hmm. around the world. It's been translated yeah. into 20 languages, so it's done good work for the kingdom. And I'm really proud of that, Dad. Uh, and and the, the impact that's had. Uh, my son, who's always been a little bit more cautious about these things, said, you know, <clears throat> Dad, it really hasn't affected my life that much. You didn't turn it into a career. I chose not to do mm. what you've done, and that has kind of created an organization as a part of my redemptive story. Yeah. In my case, it was just putting my head down, raising my three kids, and teaching at a university and making life work. So but writing the book was a little bit more of a sideshow instead of kind of a main show mm -hmm. for me. A side ring, not the not the 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 center ring of my life. Which I think is important to note, by the way, Jerry, because I think a lot of people get pigeonholed into thinking, well, I see these other people do these other things and they kind of make something of their but redemption happens in both of those arenas. It does. Right? That's exactly right, Davey. I and well, that was the point my, my, my son was making. He said, I grew up in a normal home. Now, I, we didn't have mom around, 
But I was widowed and did not remarry for 20 years. And we just figured out how to be a family of four. In fact, we had a gathering just last week with the whole family and kids were laughing a lot. Every summer we went to a national park and camp and backpack. Every summer we went to a Shakespeare festival for five or six days. We just learned how to do life. And he said that the book did not interrupt my life. Now, every once in a while, he says, especially as an adult, someone will say, Sitzer, are are you related to Jerry? Or, Hmm. uh, oh, I've heard about your story or whatever. But he said, it doesn't happen often enough uh, to to really feel like it's an intrusion on my life. So that was the first thing. But here's the other telling thing he said. He said, I think about mom every day. I really miss her a lot. That's never gone away. I've always had that kind of longing. But he said, here's the problem, Dad, is that I like my life as it is right now, too. And I can't have both mm-hmm. because my life is unfolded in the wake of the fact that mom and Dinah Jane and grandma died. Wow. You'd like it both ways, but you can't have it both ways. So he wow. said, I'm happily married. I love my wife. I love my home. I love everything about what what's true in my life right now. Yeah. And all of that is at least in part a result of the tragedy. Now think about the irony of that. So he said, you've got to mourn the past and the loss that you suffered and the ending of that story. Hmm. And it's appropriate to keep mourning that for the rest of your life. You don't get over that. You can grow into it and carry it. You can't get over it. And yet be also present and attentive to the new story that's unfolding. yeah. In his case, marrying Kelly and having now, they just had a third baby uh, six weeks ago and and three children and so on and so forth. Or my marriage, who I called uh, Patricia, I call it uh, the first marriage, the second time around. Mm-hmm. So there's so much richness in our life story now. And part of that is a result of the fact that the other story yeah. ended. Yeah. So I like the fact that he chose life, not the life he would have wanted, but the life that was imposed on him or by the circumstances imposed on him. And that seems strikes me as a is a really healthy way to live out tragedy. Yeah. You don't get over the old, but you're open to the new. Right. And I think one of the greatest travesties in whether it's someone from the outside looking in on stories of tragedy like yours or, or mine, or whether it's someone who's trying to live one out is that you tend to think that those are mutually exclusive concepts that, that you, you either have to hang on to the old or live out the new. You can't hold the two in tension. And you have to hold them in tension. And actually that creates in us a profound capacity that has to be developed in the human person. You know, Dave, you were made in the image of God. We have amazing capacity. As the psalmate says, we're made a little lower than God himself. Hmm. We're, we're the, the, the quintessential example of God's creative power. We're superior to the angels. We're amazing. We're also fallen. We're both at the same wow. time. And life experience tends to gnaw away the ugly stuff and provide us with the circumstances to grow beauty in us, beauty out of Mm -hmm. ashes. 
and it increases the capacity we have in our souls to know God, to imitate God, to live out a story of redemption, and so on. But we have to learn to live in those tensions. That's another point that has really become clear to me over the years is our capacity to live in tension. Now, I tell this story in this one of the new chapters, but it was very meaningful to me. 18 months ago, uh, I get up, I always get up very, very early in the morning, about 530. It's just in my gene pool, I guess. And (laughs) went out, uh, made a cup of coffee. Uh, That's what gets my wife out of bed is coffee. And uh, went out and got the uh, newspaper in the morning. Yes, that tells you my age because I still get a physical newspaper. (laughs) And uh, and then noticed Venus in the morning sky. Um, It was really strutting its stuff. It was beautiful. It looked like a small moon. It was so big Mm. and so bright and so glorious hanging there in the morning sky, dominating the skyline. And I just stared at it for a while with a sense of deep wonder. Went back to my uh, favorite chair, had my morning devotions and sipped on my coffee and kind of breathed this sort of sigh of pure pleasure that I had been exposed to something just so extraordinary in the heavenly bodies, you know. Mm. That afternoon, I got a call from my sister who told me the story of my great nephew who had come to Whitworth to play football that fall got a pain in his leg, MRI, uh, MRI, had an MRI taken, discovered it was osteosarcoma, bone cancer. Mm-hmm. And uh, the diagnosis came in that day. So she called me and said, this is really bad news. And um, six weeks later, he lost his leg mid-thigh, went through horrific chemo, cancer spread. I did his memorial service just this past February. Mm-hmm. He died at 19 years old. Okay, so here's the metaphor, Davey. Hmm. Venus in the morning sky and a telephone call about osteosarcoma in a young man. That's the world we live in right there. That's the tension of life that all of us experience. And as you grow in Christ and as you face the losses that you experience, that tension grows, but so does your capacity to be present to both. So you can be both sorrowful and joyful. Hmm. You can face the tumult of life, in my case, raising three little kids, highly traumatized, and yet somehow move toward peace. Both are possible. Hmm. Wow. Wow. You know, know, there's another tension that you kind of bring up quite a bit in in the book, and you, you had to wrestle with it. I've had to wrestle with it. It's the tension of the it's the theodicy, right? It's the idea that there's pain and suffering that exists in this world. And yet God is all powerful and all loving, you know? And of course the circular questioning that ends up saying, well, if he's all loving, then why would he allow this to happen in my life? I'm sure you got that question many times. I still do. I get that so many times. Yeah. Um, but if he's all powerful, you know, why did he not stop this? Um, you know, yeah. as you hold those two things in tension, what, what what have you made of that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I still struggle with it. I'm not sure there is an answer that is entirely satisfying. Yeah. So I'm going to go on a little bit of a riff here. Yeah. Um, one of the most useful exercises that I followed, Davey, was this one. Okay, so 
let's just say that um, you determine God's job description as God. Mm. And every time something bad happens, you say, well, God, if you were really God, that wouldn't have happened because you're all you're good and you're loving and you're all powerful and therefore all bad things shouldn't happen. Yeah. So uh, you want to reverse that event. Uh, your wife now is alive again and my wife is too and my daughter and my mother. And then uh, something else bad happened six months later. Well, if, if God were God, he wouldn't have allowed that to happen too. And then something else, if God were God, in other words, what you really want is a perfect life. Right. And by perfect, you mean incomplete control, mm. which is really a way of saying, Davey, you want to be God. Right. You don't want God to be God. You want to be God and you want to boss him around and tell him what to do. Mm. And there is a word we use for that place when we are in charge and it's called hell. Mm. Wow. In hell, people get exactly what they want without God. Wow. I love Lewis's description, actually, yeah. of hell, where he says, uh, you get your way, you get what you want, and you're totally alone. Yeah. You get to be God of your own world, and you're the only one there. And yeah. when I think about being alone for eternity, it is the most terrifying thing that I can think of. Right. So following that trail of logic is if, if I operate under the assumption that God is really God only when I get my way, hmm. I follow that trail and it leads me all the way to hell. Wow. So I think, no, that's not an answer here. Yeah. Um, so instead, I, I think differently about this, <clears throat> that... We live in a fallen world and the world is broken and full of tragedy and sorrow and hurt. And that fall came about because we rejected uh, God's plan to be his vice gerunds, to be his creatures on earth, his image bearers, and to imitate him and follow him. And we chose to try to play God ourselves and it catapulted the entire creative order into utter disaster. Well, God has now set in motion a plan to redeem this story and to redeem the people that he's made in his image. Right. But that story of redemption involves pain. Hmm. There's just no way around it. It involves yeah. pain. Uh, we can respond to pain either by shaking our fist at God for the rest of our lives or realize maybe something else is going on here than meets the eye. Hmm and allow God to use that pain or that loss in a way that is profoundly redemptive and formational in our lives. Yeah. In other words, loss and suffering grows us up. Wow. Davey, I wish there were another way. <laughs> I do but there, I, there isn't. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wish there were another way of raising children. Yeah. But as you know, in raising children, pain and suffering is a part of the business. Not that I beat them. I, obviously, I wouldn't right. do that at all. But that's just the nature of reality in a fallen world. Yeah, yeah. And so, but there's a second thing I want to say, and it has to do with how we view time. When we, when we, when we make God subject to our experience of time, hmm. and then we say something like, well, God has a purpose in this, 
we're really saying God caused this. Yeah. But God is not subject to time in the same way we are. So God is as alive 100 years from now as he is now, and he's as alive 100 years in the past as he is now, all times at the present to God. So I tend to see God enveloping time, Hmm. surrounding time. He, he's present to the outcome of the tragedy as well as to the tragedy itself. Mm. It all fits together in some kind of larger story, larger narrative. The best analogy I can come up with is a novelist who writes a novel. Right. Well, the novelist has the whole thing in his or her brain before ever putting a pen, pen to paper. Uh, he could start or she could start writing the last chapter before the first chapter because the novelist transcends the time sequence of the novel itself. Yeah. Well, God, all times are the present to God. Okay, so here's a great little story uh, that involved my my son, David. We're driving Mm -hmm. to a soccer match and he's about eight years old. He's very quiet, he tends to be quiet. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he says, "Um, do you think mom sees us? Hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is one of those moments. Yep. Stay with it, Jerry. Stay with it. Well, I said, um, why are you asking? And he said, well, um, <clears throat> if mom sees us and she's in heaven, how can she bear to see the pain we're in? Mm. He's eight, Davy. Wow. And he's thinking about these things. Never underestimate an eight-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Well, we talk about it a little bit. We're silent for a while. And I, I respond finally. This is a longer conversation this way. The reason why she can be present to our pain and witness it in heaven is because she also sees how the story is going to turn out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's grace that envelops the pain itself. There are a few topics we get asked about quite a bit, and some of them might seem obvious to you. Loss of a spouse, loss of a child, but one might surprise you, and that's the topic of sexual betrayal. In fact, I was surprised to learn that four of our top 10 most listened to episodes are on the topic of sexual betrayal, which tells me that it's a very prevalent issue. And it also tells me that there aren't very many resources out there to date. I mean, one of the most devastating things that can happen in a marriage is to find out that your spouse has in any way been unfaithful, whether it's through a pornography addiction or an actual affair. Not just navigating sexual betrayal and all the muddiness involved in your marriage, but finding healing in the ongoing fallout of the deception can seem quite impossible. No matter what happens in your relationship, there is hope. On Thursday, October 20th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, we will be hosting a live masterclass with our very own Nothing Is Wasted certified coach, Carissa Sprinkle. This masterclass is called Broken Vows, Experiencing Wholeness and Healing After Sexual Betrayal. Now, if you don't know her, you can hear Carissa's journey after learning that her husband, Cameron, had been unfaithful and the beautiful redemption story God brought out of so much brokenness in episodes 79 and 80 of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. Now, those episodes were recorded a while ago, 
Their story has since taken on even more complicated and beautiful dynamics. Cameron and Carissa have become wonderful dear friends of ours. And there's not a better person, I believe, in my opinion, to teach on this topic than Carissa Sprinkle. In this upcoming masterclass, Chris is going to share with us how to heal from the trauma of sexual betrayal, what forgiveness is and what it isn't, navigating friendships and faith struggles while in recovery, and more. Joining this masterclass is easy and free. All you have to do is sign up at nothingiswasted.com slash masterclass. We'll have a link right here in the show notes. Once you register, you'll receive an email that will tell you exactly how to join the live event on October 20th. Now, if you can't make it on October 20th, but you want to catch the replay, all of our masterclass replays are available exclusively to our Community Plus members for just $20 a month or $200 a year. There you can access all of our Nothing Is Wasted content library, including past masterclasses, curated pathways, like the one on sexual betrayal, which is released, live coaching replays, mini courses, bonus episodes, and so much more. Join Community Plus today by going to nothingiswasted.com slash community plus or clicking the link in the show notes. Sexual betrayal is something no one ever plans for when they say, I do. But we know that even in the midst of that pain, God can bring healing and restoration when the pieces of your heart seem forever shattered. Join us for this special live masterclass with Carissa Sprinkle on October 20th. Well, Jerry, this goes back to, you know, what you were saying earlier about seeing your story through narrative is, is it's imperative. Yeah. And it's not just, it's not just seeing your, your story through narrative, but it's also setting straight the, your, your worldview, the narrative of, history yeah. right it's if you're going to see it through the lens as you just described it then you can begin to start to to you know unpack and unravel your pain through the lens of god's story as opposed to through the lens yeah. of your own logic or your own yeah. story well i think you need to be aware of the stories the narratives by which you operate could yeah. be a narrative of victimization narrative of revenge narrative mm-hmm. of success Life is good only when I'm successful, only when I get my way, uh, without always consciously thinking about it. In fact, I'm sure most of the time we don't think about it. We do, in fact, operate out of some narrative perspective. We make meaning in our lives Hmm. by interpreting what happens to us and what happens in the world around us from some kind of narrative perspective. It's often very self-defeating. Yeah. Um, when you step out of those narratives and step into the biblical narrative, then you begin to live in hope and expectation. That doesn't mean you have everything figured out. Uh, here's a good example. I love the story of Joseph. It's one of my favorite for yeah. obvious reasons in the Bible. And uh, I'll give you the, the thumbnail. You know, Joseph is a young man. He's got uh, uh, 10 older brothers. He's the spoiled son and the favorite son of his father. His older brothers come to hate him, and uh, they finally find an opportunity to get rid of him. They're going to murder him, but uh, the eldest brother intervenes, and instead they sell him uh, as uh, to a, a caravan of traders going down to Egypt. Uh, he's again sold in Egypt to um, the, uh, a wealthy man who is a member of the court of Pharaoh. And uh, the narrative tells us, the writer of the story tells us at this point that the Lord was with Joseph. Hmm. 
Now, that's a, there's a little bitter irony to that because in Joseph's own immediate experience, where is he going to find evidence of God? Yeah. He's just been betrayed by his brothers, sold as a slave, and now living in a foreign country as a servant in a, in a man's household. Well, his fortunes rise. He, he shows responsibility. He proves that he's a man of faith. Uh, then the, the man, Potiphar, his wife tries to seduce Joseph, and he holds her off and says, no, I can't do this to God or to my master. She runs to her um, husband and say, Joseph is trying to seduce me. In other words, lies. Potiphar believes his wife and tosses him into prison. So now we have the betrayal of brothers, yes. slavery, and imprisonment. <laughs> and again, the narrator has the audacity to say to us, the reader, and the Lord was with Joseph. <laughs> again, Joseph's yeah. uh, fortunes rise in prison, and he's there for years. Right. All right. Well, then, here's my favorite incident. One little paragraph. So... Being in prison for years, two of Pharaoh's court officials are tossed into prison for some impropriety. One is the baker, and the other is the uh, the steward. I call him the butler. The baker <laughs> and the butler. And they both have dreams in prison. And they look around at all their fellow prisoners and say, we're so confused by these dreams that nobody can make sense of them. Joseph steps forward and says, well, my God can give me the ability to interpret dreams. He hears both the dreams. He interprets them correctly. Bad news for the baker. He loses his head. But the butler is restored to his position of power in Pharaoh's court. And just before he's released from prison, <laughs> Joseph says this, remember me when you mm -hmm. appear before Pharaoh again. Now, I want you to step into this story, Davy, and yeah. think what's going on in Joseph's head. He's thinking, the almighty God, whom I've been trusting now for years, yeah. in horrible circumstances, has finally given me my ticket out. Hmm. Thank God. So he's got this narrative constructed in his brain of how things are going to turn out. And the butler forgets. <laughs> Two more years. And I'm thinking at that point, Joseph has probably faced the crisis of his life yeah. because the narrative he constructed in his head was such that this was going to be his way out of this horrible set of circumstances. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Now, if Joseph had gotten his way then and there, it might have been good for Joseph, but for nobody else. Uh, there would have been no uh, restoration to Pharaoh's court. There would have been no no one in charge to handle the, the, the plenty and the famine. Yeah. There would have been no yeah. restoration with his father and his brothers. It would have been a narrative that would have only fit Joseph's purpose and served his interest. Right. He had to wait. Right. And then, of course, as you know, Pharaoh has a dream. And I love this line. He begins to ask all his advisors, can you make sense of this? Nobody can. And then the butler steps forward and says, ah, oh, I remember my faults today. Well, yeah, yeah I, I should hope so. <laughs> there was a man in prison, a Hebrew, he says. Hmm. And he had the power to interpret dreams. Well, you know how the story ends up. Yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden wow. now, look what happens. A chain reaction of reconciliation and restoration that affects an entire nation and yeah. a family system. Yeah. So wow. when we live 
in uh, a redemptive narrative, the biblical narrative. That doesn't mean we have it all figured out. We are often traveling blind, but we mm -hmm. do have stories, don't we, Davey? Like the Joseph yep. story, yep. or the Esther story, or the youth, uh, Ruth story, and of course, the, the redemptive story, the Jesus yeah. story, that reminds us that even when we're traveling blind, God is somehow in this narrative. Yeah, so good. And good is going to come from it, even if it's not the good that we designed in our imagination, as Joseph did when right. he interpreted the dream of the butler. Right, right. Well, and what's so amazing about it, too, is you see the the butler kind of, it occurred to him, oh, right? I mean, that's <laughs> completely God's timing, completely God's that's you right. know, hand that's causing this epiphany to happen at, you know, exactly the right time. I mean, he did remember Joseph. It was just two years later. It was just two years later. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and I look at it in some ways, Jerry, I've looked at that situation where Joseph goes, Hey, remember me almost as a resignation that now maybe I can't trust God. Maybe I need to take this into my own hands a little bit. That's right. Yes. And uh -huh. drop this seed here and try to manipulate the process. And it was like, I kind of look at it in, in some ways and, you know, again, we're all interpreting these things a little bit differently as we peer into it, but we go, maybe that's why God had to leave him in the prison for another couple of years. Cause it wasn't, he didn't have the full trust yet to say, I trust you with my story, God, to work this out. Or, or the alignment of circumstances that yeah. turned this story from a nice story that would have been forgotten in history True. to an amazing right. story. I mean, you think about the Ruth story. Yeah. A rural rural um, Palestine during, uh, I mean, th there's nothing about that story that's significant. Right. It's right. it's not memorable at all, except for the fact that Boaz, a generation mm -hmm. older than Ruth, they marry and they have a son, and he has a son, and that son happens to be the king of Israel, and many right. generations later, Another son is born who, oh, my goodness, just happens to be the savior of the world. King of kings. Wow. We just don't see it all. We never no, we see don't. it all, Davy, And that's why we have to function at least partly by faith. And it means sometimes we're going to be weaned from our attachment to these redemptive narratives that we construct yeah. in our brains. Now, in my case, you know, I'm thinking two or three years after the accident, well, maybe it's time for me to remarry. Hmm. And it didn't happen. Not for 20 years. And then all my kids were gone from the home. Well, then ironically, I finally meet a lovely woman, Patricia, and her two daughters just happened to be really good friends of my two sons. Who could have made wow. that up? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's the, that's the beauty of the, the story writing of God. That's why I love your, that, that you see it and you talk about it through story. That's one of the things we talk about so much because you yeah. – you can't understand story until you kind of get to the end. And that's the benefit of having some of these narratives that we can draw from some of these yeah. stories from scripture. And, 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 you know, when we could look at like your life and you're telling these stories and you can look back on it and you can say, well, let me show you some of these breadcrumbs of redemption that the Lord has left through the whole thing. I mean, I look at Joseph's story and I go, well, I can see what benefit there was for him to be in Potiphar's house. And then the duties that he was given, the responsibilities he was given to, for, for you know, responsible over the rations in prison, he that was building blocks for him to be able to put all of be it. put at second command and he, to save he the had, you know people. Yeah, and he had no idea, no idea, no idea yeah. how this would be useful later on. Which is a good a good argument for why we need to be attentive to what is immediately at hand. 
there's more going on than meets the eye and we just have to be awake to it attuned to it augustine um i mean i'm a church historian so i'm going to do this kind of thing from time to time but yes uh, augustine (laughs) i appreciate that so much in one of his one of his essays um that there really the past and future do not in fact exist now you think, well, wait a minute, that's crazy. No, he said, logically, um, you, the past is done. It doesn't exist anymore. It exists in the present only as a consequence from past things or as a memory. The future doesn't exist. It hasn't happened yet. The future exists only as an expectation and a hope. So he put it this way. The present of the past is memory. The present of the present is attentiveness the present of the future is expectation. So it is so important that armed with a kind of hope and faith, we're as attentive to the present moment as we can possibly be. Hmm. Because it's the only moment we have. Wow. If we pine away at a lost past or are constantly imagining and constructing a particular kind of future, we are actually becoming less and less attentive to the present, and that's the only time we have. Wow. So it's become really important in my own life story to be as attentive to what is immediately at hand. When I'm with a grandchild, I've got 11 of them now. Or when I'm in a conversation with you, Davey, or I'm reading a book, or I'm taking a walk, or I'm meeting with a pastor and mentoring them, or when I'm alone, uh, I'm... I'm trying to be attentive to the only time I have, which is right now, Hmm. with a kind of hope that God is in this, even though I can't see it. Once in a while, we get bigger glimpses. I mean, your your second wedding is a is a bigger glimpse. Yeah, yeah. But then you come down from the mountain and you're back in the valley and it's cloudy and you you're working out life and raising kids and raising money or doing whatever you have to do when. Hmm. The sky is not so open. Yeah. And then you have another moment again when the sky is, is bigger and more open. Wow. In the case of Joseph, sometimes we have an open sky and we misread it. <laughs> we think yeah. we get it and we don't. Wow. What I'm hearing you say is it's not, it's not that we're not supposed to be reflective or nostalgic about the past. And it's not that we're not supposed to be future oriented or, you know. Exactly. Th- having a vision for the future, but it's that the present right now, it we, it's the balance of it, right? It's the, we've got to make sure that the scales are tipped more toward just living out the present. Yeah. <clears throat> but I mean, Augustine uh, meant, meant it this way. So I have no control over the past. I can't change anything. Yeah. My greatest power is how I remember it. Wow. Okay. So I know people who remember the past in an idealized way. I'll never be happy again. Hmm. I lost this child or lost my job or lost my health. And that was the ideal. And so for the rest of my life, I'm going to have second or third or fourth best. That's bad memory. That's memory that disempowers us. Memory that assigns us to a life of misery. Um, A better memory is to say, I can't change the past, but I can be attentive to how that past is carrying over into the present and how I can live in ways that are meaningful and rich. So memory is a muscle. How Hmm. we remember something is actually different from the event itself. 
So we have power over how we remember things and whether we can remember them from a kind of redemptive perspective. Uh, when it comes to the future, we can't live in the future, but we can live with hope about the future. And that actually sends us right back into the present again. Man. Wow. I live more purposefully. I live more hopefully in the present instead of being so preoccupied with the future that we we dream about it but then we never we're never sent back into the present to live differently in light of our hope and expectation about the future wow wow yeah because we're honest, it's a not lot. that we live it's not that we live for the moment that's irresponsibility yeah it's a that's a foolish 16 year old that's drink, yeah. who drinks too much it's a good distinction it's that we live in the moment hmm. wow wow we live in the moment for something bigger than even time itself. Correct. Right? Yes. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You know, um, man, I hope everybody who is listening to this right now, we're, we're all going to have to go back and like rewind it and listen to it some more. And <laughs> this is beautiful, Jerry. Um, I want to talk a little bit about community because that's the other that's the other pillar that you kind of bring forward in this, you know, this new release, this 25-year anniversary release of Grace Disguise is, is community because we have a lot of people in our community who are asking questions about community. And unfortunately, Jerry, um, unfortunately it's through the lens of I'm having trouble finding good, strong community within my church community Yeah, because I'm experiencing something. My life experience right now, it doesn't seem like there is a space that, that they can hold a space for that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know you've got a lot to say about that. What well, what are your thoughts on? Well, I'll begin by saying it, it is a problem for a couple of reasons. Um, most people are good for the short term. And I don't mean that negatively because it includes you and me. Yeah, right. Uh, I'm good at sending a card, having one cup of coffee, dropping a meal off, whatever it happens to be. But then I return to life as normal yeah. again. Uh, one of Patricia's best friends uh, and her husband uh, just lost a 37-year-old two weeks ago in a motorcycle accident. Married's got a four-year-old. And they live, what, a quarter mile from us. And so we're seeing them pretty regularly. And in this case, we have looked at each other in the face and realized this is going to be one of the long-haul ones. Yeah. Uh, dropping off a meal is not going to be enough. Yeah. We're too close to them. So uh, there are a lot of people who are good for the short-term stuff, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, because we only have so much capacity to carry the sorrow of other people long-term. Right. The other thing that's really exacerbated uh, the, this whole uh, set of circumstances, I think in the last two years, but really much longer, is the increasing isolation and loneliness in American society. Uh, yeah. uh, Obama's attorney general uh, wrote a book uh, and it came out a few years ago, I think pre-COVID actually. And he said that um, that the modern, the, the greatest malady in the modern world is loneliness. Hmm. That our level of isolation is utterly profound. They've done some research on this. They'll interview somebody and say, uh, who are the people you can call if you land in an emergency room and you need to ride home? And a surprisingly high percentage of people say, I don't know who I'd call. 
Wow. So that's one of a number of things they've done to try to discern the level of isolation and loneliness in people's lives. Yeah. Well, I would I would say this. I, I think we welcome the gestures of a larger group of people when we've gone through some kind of big loss. Mm. The meal, the card, whatever, including the inept things that they are inevitably going to say. Right. I think we need to be generous. I mean, we've all said stupid things. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody knows what to say or what to do anyway. Right. Uh, in the wake of some kind of big loss. Yeah, even you and I who some people would say like, "Oh, you have to be an expert on loss," right? We still don't know what to say. Oh, no, a lot. I mean, right? the best thing to say is I'm sorry and then shut up. Exactly. Or get them to begin telling stories themselves, but not not giving answers. There are no answers. That's right. Or better put, there are answers, but it takes a long time to grow into them mm. and to make them your own. That's right. So an answer as we define it is, um, uh, is not particularly appropriate early mm. on, especially in, in loss. Uh, in the experience of loss, whatever it happens to be. Uh, I'm going to add to that, though, that we as people who've gone through loss need to take responsibility to build a team. Hmm. Sometimes that's really natural, and we'll have our friends take the initiative. I had four or five colleagues at Whitworth University within weeks after the accident surround me and say, Jerry, we're in this for the long haul with you. And Davey, we've been meeting almost every week for 30 years. Wow. Okay, now that's unusual. That's very unusual. But I have some unusual friends. I feel like I'm appointed now to do that for other people, to be, at least in a few circumstances, Mm -hmm. that long haul person. So sometimes it happens pretty naturally, at other times it doesn't happen naturally. Let's just say you, you, you recently moved. Yeah. And you're in a community and they're all strangers to you. Well, then you have to think, okay, what can I do here to build a team of people who are really going to be my my support group over the long haul without taxing any one person too much? Mm. You might ask an older person, would you meet with me once a month and mentor me? Uh, Maybe find a therapist, uh, join a small group, meet with a pastor and ask not the pastor to do it, but do you have two or three people you know of who could really be supportive of me because I just don't have that community at my disposal in a kind of natural way. Yeah. In other words, we have to take some initiative, Davey, because we right. cannot, we cannot do this alone. Hmm. It, it loss, it can be profoundly isolating. You feel oh, yeah. self-conscious, you feel exposed, you feel different. Well, you are different. And so there are times when we must take the initiative. Wow. Maybe that provides some explanation as to why so many of us feel isolated, especially after experiencing loss, is that I've, as far as I've experienced anecdotally, most people are waiting on the church or someone else to take the initiative yeah. to come in and step into their loss. And when that doesn't happen, then they feel this even, you know, even they're increasingly aware of the void or the vacuum that's there. Yeah, once in a while, once in a while, someone will take the initiative who uh, say has gone through a big loss. Yeah. I'll even do that on occasion. Not very often, actually, Davey, but if I know someone a little bit better, just because of the nature of my own life experience, I feel like it's kind of a duty at the local level uh, to meet with people. Sometimes it's only once or twice. Sometimes it's much, much longer. 
uh, depending on the nature of the, the circumstances. Uh, and I'm sure you do the same thing where you started a whole organization to be able to do this. Yeah, but so even in that, we Jerry, benefit as... from other people's initiative. Right. Sometimes we've got to take it ourselves and build a team for the long haul. Right. Yeah, and uh, you know what? I, what I was going to say right there is that even in that, I still have to figure out what's my capacity personally. You yeah. Know, outside of the organizational structure and the systems that we put in place to serve people and help people, and the other people yeah. that we employ and delegate to to serve people and help people. What does that look like for me? And I think that's a question that everybody has to ask themselves as well and kind of gauge their capacity as well as gauge even just like the conviction, right? Where's the Holy Spirit saying, hey, this is a long haul person. This is someone you need to walk with. Yeah. And and I think that everybody's, you know, we should all, I think it's part of the, the Christian experience, a life with Jesus to have that for a few people, but we can't have it for everybody. We don't we have the capacity for it. It requires discernment, a life of prayer to determine yeah. your appropriate role. You know, you have an organization. In my case, I wrote a book. I do get a lot of mail. I've mm-hmm. had thousands of emails, letters, and calls I'm over sure. the years, you know. And I will not carry on long-term correspondence with people. Uh, eventually, I'll encourage them to find somebody local. Uh, that that's beyond what I'm able to do. I do respond to everything I receive. Yeah. And um, with a word of advice or a thank you or whatever, whatever's required in the moment. Hmm. Uh, there are some people who have gone through losses where I've been uh, right on the, it, it, at the front row because it was appropriate. Right. We have to be discerning and trust the guidance of the Holy Spirit uh, to determine what our proper role is. But if we're if the we're the ones who've gone through the loss, somewhere along the line, we have to look around us and say, okay, who who are the people who I'm going to be able to turn to, not just yeah. in the next week, but the next year, or in some cases, the next decade? Mm, wow. So, you know, my good friend, Ron and Julie, good friends, Ron and Julie Powell were, were that couple. She was a good friend of Linda's, and he was a colleague at Whitworth with me. And they just were so profoundly loyal and good to me over the years mm-hmm. with childcare, with advice giving, with just shared life, shared life. Wow. And uh, Ron was involved in my wedding uh, 12 years ago when I remarried after all those years of widowhood. They were like spouses to me in a strange kind of way during those years of widowhood. Uh, six years ago, Ron's wife died, Julie died of cancer. Oh. And my wife and I met with him every week, every week. We still do every week. Two years ago, I did his wedding. Wow. Now that's long haul relationship yeah, right there, Davey. And we're blessed. I know that. It's an unusual set of circumstances. But we have to exercise some responsibility to figure out how to put that team together. Yeah. So that we uh, have people who are holding us. Wow. You, know, you keep saying that, though, Jerry. It's an unusual set of circumstances. But it does, isn't that sad that that is the case? It is right? sad. Like, I feel like, it, feel like maybe in the past it used to not be as unusual. But for whatever reason, maybe it's yeah. – co- I'm sure it's a combination of a lot of different things, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think just the, the globalization of, of our world now, we're, we're so – we have access to just about everything that we could. We're so connected to each other technologically, but we all, again, we're feeling increasingly isolated. 
And yeah, we know a lot of people and we know no one at the same time. Wow. Yeah, with Instagram and Facebook yeah. and and uh, and Twitter and so on, our level of connectedness is vast. The level of depth has been lost. Mm. Hence the loneliness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. One of the things I appreciate about you is that you, even though you, your loss is one that if you were to put measures and weights on it, which again, I know you can't and shouldn't do that, right? But your your loss is extremely heavy. There are, most people have not experienced, especially in one fail swoop in one moment, the amount of loss that you've experienced. And yet you hold so much space for all different types of grief. And, and you know, you're very... Um, forthright about that in your, in your book. Um, you were, you know, I, I feel like even as you were talking about letters that are coming in and stuff, I'm sure you experienced this phenomenon that happens where people say, Hey, I know I haven't experienced anything to the level that you have, but and they the share time. their story, right? <laughs> which, yeah. which tells me that, okay, they, they, they have in their mind some kind of scaling system, but then they also want to feel some validation or some solidarity. They want to they want you to understand their story, which tells me that's really yeah. important to the human experience. Yeah. And yeah. so how do you hold yeah, that? I, I mean, why that. is that so important that we don't diminish other people's pain, that we really hold space for that? And how do you do that? Well, I, I, the initial uh, uh, thought behind this uh, came to my mind when my, my friends um, strongly encouraged me to write the book that became A Grace Disguise. They said, We've been listening to you for three years now. We think your perspective is really fresh. You're a good writer. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, no, that is, I do not want to go in print. And they said, some things are not your choice. Hmm. Some things you do as a matter of duty to the human community. And we feel like this is one of them. It's wow. a good use of your gifts. You had a really big experience. You've got a platform. Um, and the uh, circumstances, uh, the kind of the conf a convergence of circumstances are such yeah. that you need to take this seriously. Well, I wrote a first draft. I remember where everybody was sitting in my living room 25 years ago when we were talking about this first draft. I could name every person who was there. And I made my famous carrot cake and we were sipping on coffee and tea. And um, they said, they said great things, fresh, great theology, great perspective. And then there was this deafening silence. And then one woman looked at me and said, but you're not in this book and you have to be in it. You have to be in this book and wow. Linda and your mother, you've got to tell stories. It can't be theological. Wow. It's got to be somehow more autobiographical. I call it now a theological memoir, like yeah. Augustine's Confessions, although mm. no one will ever get close to the brilliance of that book. <laughs> <laughs> and I really wrestled because I didn't want to do it. I felt exposed. Yeah, yeah. But they were very clear. It's got to be that way or no way. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what inspired me to write the second chapter in what you're referring to, whose loss is worse, because I didn't want to use my experience as a kind of trump card to everybody right. else. Right. Here's the ace of spades. You think you've suffered. Well, you don't have any idea. Yeah. And so I began to think about losses and the variety of them, and how they're all bad in their own way. I haven't experienced divorce. I don't know what it's like to suffer rejection. Yeah. Uh, I haven't had a terminal illness. I'm really healthy. I have never lost a job. I've never suffered unemployment. 
I mean, there are all kinds of losses that are irreversible. That's what I call them, irreversible losses that change the landscape of one's life. Mine was one kind of loss. I didn't I didn't have to struggle with a two-year battle against cancer. I didn't lose my my wife one drip at a time. I mean, it's just one kind of loss. It was horrible, and it took a long time to get back on my feet. But I know a lot of people who've gone through horrible experiences that are very, very different from mine, and I refuse to invalidate those. That's right. They may be more private. They may not look as big, but they still are. Yeah. Wow. wow. So all loss is bad, just bad in different ways. What I call catastrophic or irreversible loss, such that the landscape of your life is permanently altered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that the evidence of someone who is living out a narrative that is not a victim narrative, it's not a pity narrative. Yeah is someone who can hold space for other people's losses, no matter what degree those losses are. Uh Again, we're going back to our human capacity, aren't we? That's exactly right. Uh, If we're willing to face our pain, find grace in it, uh, our soul grows in its capacity to bear the pain of Mm -hmm. other people. I mean, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. He didn't put it in the past tense, Davy. Right. He didn't say, blessed are those who once who once were mourning, but now they can be happy again. (laughs) He said, blessed are those who are mourning. I think mourning should be a lifestyle. We might not have uh, circumstances that that make us mourn, but there's a lot in the world that is worthy of mourning. Hmm. And it's our obligation as followers of Jesus to step into that. That's right. That's right. You know, it is what Romans 1, I think it says, that all creation is waiting for oh. the day, right, where he will it's make groaning in travail as if, yep. as if in childbirth. Childbirth. Wow. Yep. And we have to attune to the cry and the sigh right. and the groaning of the world. It's all That's around right. us. That's you know, right. there's something in us, Davy, that wants to live in a nice gated community. As a, it's a metaphor. True. The gated community, shut out the world. I've got yeah. my nice property. I've got my swimming pool. I've got my good friends. I have my hobby. I have my happy marriage. Um, goodbye to the rest yeah. of the world. And God will simply not allow that. That's true. He calls us into the pain in the world. That's right. Yeah. And it's often our own pain that is that actually symbolizes that calling. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It provides the thrusters for us to step into other people's pain yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. And then we get to experience the beauty, right? A gated, yes. a gated life is not a beautiful life. It's a hollow no. life. It's a hollow <laughs> life. Good choice and, of words. Right. And so, and so we get to experience beauty, but that beauty only comes, as you said earlier, the redemption only comes. It, it's, it, it, it is ne- necessary that pain is a part of that story yeah. if we're going to experience redemption and beauty in it all. Yeah. And so that couple I referred to that lost their 37 year old son just two weeks ago in a motorcycle accident. Uh, we had dinner with them Tuesday night and uh, after dinner or we sat outside in our backyard eating and there was there was a level of. I don't even know what to call it. Pain and sweetness, both hmm. 
deep human connection, profound affection. Uh, it was it was holy. It was painful, wow. yeah. and it was holy. Yeah, and sure. in its own strange kind of way, beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> oh, how in the world do you hold those things in tension? But you do, right? And yeah, as we can, as you, we are able to as our capacity has grown and and who God has created us to be in the image of Him. Now, that's why I don't think you get over something. I think you grow into it. And you learn I to carry that. it better. I love that phrase. You absorb it. You absorb it into your soul. Yeah. And it becomes part of who you are as a human being. Yeah. It's so good. Man, I wish we could sit and talk for hours about this. Um, well. And and maybe we'll get the courage to ask you again for some more time later because I would love to have some more time. I love to, that. I love what you're doing, chat. Davey. And I love your own spirit and how your story is unfolding. Mm. And um, I want to say when it comes to narratives again, I'll just say, you know, I, I was widowed for 20 years and uh, I finally arrived at the point, it didn't take that long actually, for me to realize, no, I don't need to remarry to have this story be a good one. That's it, yep. Uh, I did remarry, <laughs> say to my wife, it drives her crazy, my sweet Patricia, <laughs> I'll say, I came to the point of recognizing remarriage is not going to solve a problem. It just creates a different kind of problem. Yeah. <laughs> she said, Jerry, that sounds terrible. And then I smile and I laugh at her, you know. It's true. I mean, and it's a, it's a beautiful <laughs> problem. It's a beautiful problem. But, you know, you can't, you can't con construct a kind of trajectory for your life right. and then think the only way my life is going to be happy is under these set of circumstances. That's yeah. so true. That's so true. I think that, you know, I say this, often that redemption doesn't happen when God, quote unquote, restores to you what you lost. Redemption no. happens when you choose to partner with him to go help other people with what you've experienced. Oh, so wise. So well stated too. Yeah, that's exactly right. You mm. step into God's story. You don't say, tell God, you've got to step into the, the one that I've constructed in my own brain. Right. right. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And it's not going to turn out exactly as you uh, hoped and wished. I mean, by, back to the very beginning of our conversation, what David said, uh, man, I, there's so much about that loss that I miss and I will for the rest yeah. of my life. It's a deep, deep ache in me. But then he paused and looked at me and said, but I love my life right now as it is. Mm. And we can't have it both ways. Mm. Wow. Wow. Well, Jerry, this has been such a sacred time. We're going to make sure that everybody knows where to pick up the 25th anniversary edition of A Grace Disguise, as well as yeah, all of your you, other David. work. I mean, your other work is a, a, a well and a depth of wisdom and insight too. So all of these other books that you've written as well. So um, thank you for this time. This has just yeah, been wonderful. Thank you. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. Bless you in your work and marriage and in fatherhood. Well, Aubrey, what do you think about Jerry Sitzer? I mean, it was exactly what you said. He was uh, wise beyond belief. I would like to sit yeah. at his feet. I know he does this like uh, monastic course where you yeah. can kind of live with, I don't know if you're living with him, but live with other students for three right, weeks and, right. and follow him as he teaches you the like Benedict, Benedictine rule and yeah. other ancient spiritual practices. That I want to sit under that guy yeah, and just be right. influenced by him. Yeah. Which, That's which what I want. You, br you bring up a good point. You know, here's, I, when it comes to healing from trauma, 
there I've I've noticed that there is a a common thread in those who are teaching healing that you we're drawing back from like ancient uh rule of life right mm, like ancient totally. practices I mean we so this is why it was written into the pain to purpose course when we talk about sabbath or we talk about what we call irreducible minimums yeah irreducible minimums are the same idea of a rule of life if you have heard of that, you know, Pete yep. Scazzaro calls it the rule or talks about the rule of life, but it's yep. the, the idea of like, here's the rhythm of how we operate. And when we get outside of that rhythm, right. And it's a God given rhythm. It's like, here's what scripture laid out on how we should operate. When we get outside of that, that's when things begin to get a little bit wonky and haywire. And mm-hmm. we, we are now a, a disintegrated version of ourselves mm. So whether we're going through trauma or not, yeah. we're not able to properly align our hearts with God's heart. And so it exacerbates trauma in our lives, or it could even cause it in our lives too. And so it's like this reversion back to like, let's get back to the rule of yes. life. Let's get back yes. to the way of life that Jesus has called us to. Yes. Let's get back to more specifically rest, yeah. silence, yeah. solitude, yeah. let's process. And that is a lost, I don't want to say art, because well, it's, it's a lost, lost command. It's like a lost practice. Yeah. That's a great. Yeah. That's a great way of saying it. That's a lost mm-hmm. practice in our culture today. Yeah, it it's, it really is. I do feel like, thankfully, I'm seeing the Holy Spirit kind of bring. You know, you're seeing more and more books, articles, even even low church folk that are starting to embrace some of these practices. Right. But I do think you're right. Like, there's something very interesting to me that it is often people who have been through pain and have wrestled with, yeah. I don't know how to connect with God now. A God is yeah. no longer fitting into the strict faith scaffolding I had him built upon. What mm. do I do? We do find that a lot of people in those scenarios, including me, I mean, I went to a spiritual right. director for four years, five years after Cameron died, um, fall back on some of these ancient practices. Yep. And they're just Jesus's way. I mean, they are. We, yep. we can make it like... Uh, a bigger, I don't want to say a bigger deal because it is a really a really big deal. What we're talking about is Jesus's way of Sabbath, right, of right. retreat, of soul care, of stepping back, listening to the Father, intimacy with the Father in order to in order to reengage. Yeah. 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 And what what we teach in the Pain to Purpose course is that when you implement these things when you're not in crisis, it builds your house on the rock, as mm. Matthew. As, as Matthew will tell us, right? Yeah. And so it's prepare, it's building fortitude and character and strength in Christ so that you're resilient through the storm. Mm. And it also can provide healing post-storm or in the midst of the storm, right? So this rule yeah. of life, these kinds of ways of Jesus are so imperative to just have in our life, whether we're on a mountaintop or a valley yeah. in the middle of our life. And okay, so speaking of this, Jerry talks quite a bit about kind of being present in the moment, right? Yeah. Neither looking to, like and being paralyzed by the past and not worrying too much with the future, but being really present in the moment, which is a lot of what even like some of this rule of life, some monasticism kind of is going to teach. Secular wisdom is going to call it mindfulness, right? But it really is. Yeah. You're, you're talking about being like, experiencing God's presence in the present, yes. right? Yeah. And living living in that presence. And so there's been a lot of questions that the Nothing Is Wasted community has asked, Aubrey, in terms of really truly how to, this is kind of how I, I interpret those questions. How do I, how do I truly get quote unquote over or move on or move through yeah. these horrific things that have happened in my past, especially if I've lost, right? Mm-hmm. 
And I hear statements that the evangelical church will say, like, the best is yet to come, mm. or that seems very biblical even, right? Mm. Like, the best is yet to come. It seems like a very mm. Jesus-esque thing to believe. I'm having trouble reconciling those two yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Best is yet to come when I feel like the best is behind me. I've lost the best or what I I've lost the best, the best or my yeah. best years. are. You're right, exactly. So mm-hmm. how do I reconcile those things? Aubrey, I don't know what your thoughts are. I definitely mm. have thoughts on it. I want to hear your thoughts, Davey, because I, I feel like you're almost like practicing this in real time at the moment, just having come out of the trial a few weeks ago and having to revisit yeah. some of this stuff. Yeah, I think that there is a both and that I've experienced where mm-hmm. you cannot, um, you you can't suppress or gloss over the the very real visceral pain of the loss of of, of what's taken place in your past, right? And yeah. and the subsequent losses, right? Not just like for me yes. the loss of Amanda, but the, also the loss of our life together, the dreams together, the yep. what we forecasted our yep. life was gonna be like. like yep. All of those things that are subsequently lost in the wake of the loss of of a, a loved one. Um, and 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 that's just any kind of loss, right? If loss of a job, loss of a dream, loss of it, right? All that stuff that would cause you to point to uh, life is never going to be not just the same, but as good as yeah. what that was. Yeah. And so we can't suppress that. There's those are very real, visceral um, uh, emotions that we're gonna feel and experience. Yeah. And I think that we have to lean into those. Yeah. But I remember very specifically, Aubrey. Um, actually, was able to pull out the other day as I was, I've been kind of reflecting on stuff that, um, the notes that I took when I went and did an intensive counseling in, in Florida with Dr. John Walker, who was my counselor after Amanda passed away. Um, and one of the things that he said, there were like five major points that he had me grapple with. The okay. fourth one, he said this, he said, there's no need to rescue. Hmm. And I was like, you know, and and th- you know, this was like a when I say he said this, I am I have a little paragraph of like a probably a full day of wrestling with this, you know. And part of it was like, why was I not there to rescue this? It was it was a little yeah. bit of a drawback of like some negotiation with God that I was dealing with. If you're mm. familiar with that stage of grief, like, yeah, c- I could have changed this. How I could have changed, changed this? I could cha- you know that sort of thing. And this is he said, there's no need to rescue because mm. he said whatever was done, okay. This is what he said. In this world can't be undone. Hmm. Like you, you couldn't have changed what was done. There's yeah. nothing that you could have done to change it. Absolutely not. In the next world has been completely undone. Oh, wow. So wow. living literally in that tension, literally in that razor's edge of between this world and and the next world, which, you know, trauma, grief, loss, that really puts you in the middle of this like yeah, it you does. know, we've talked about this before. The the the, the already not yet, the like mm-hmm. life that to come, liminal space. Life, yeah, yeah, there's very much so. Right, heaven touches earth, mm-hmm. and so he said it can't be undone here, <clears throat> and but it's already been undone. Mm-hmm. So with Amanda, it's already been undone. So wow. recognize that, right? Wow. And this is what he said. He said there. He said there is nothing unhealthy that can, or there's nothing. I'm sorry. There's nothing healthy that can come from dwelling mm-hmm. on the horrific and the catastrophic. Mm. Wow. He said that dwelling on that will undo you. Wow. Wow. So he gave me kind of a framework, a construct to go, okay, I can't change this. Right. And I have to come to terms and accept that I cannot change this. Yeah. 
But the more I try to reach back and change it or live in it or dwell yeah. in it, it will actually change me for the worst. Mm. It will undo me, right? Mm. And the way that I live in the present, right, and be hopeful about the future is to know that, man, everything that was done to her has been completely undone. Every tear has been wiped away. Mm. Every wound has been repaired. Mm. She is living absolutely – this sounds so trite and so cliche, but it is like a – the, the the thing that people say a lot, living your best life. Like yeah. she is she actually, actually is. living her best yeah. life. What she was yeah. what she was destined and purposed to live, what all of us are destined and purposed yeah. to live in the presence, the fullness of the presence of mm. Christ. And so when I kind of came to that reality, it was like, oh, so now I have to figure out how to just live out what what God is going to put in front of me mm. and and receive whatever that is, right? Mm. And so um you know, and I can attest to the fact that like life is very different. I, I can't say that one is better than the other. I think they're very, very different. Yeah. But I also can't say that what I'm living now is worse than what it was, right? It's like this really strange thing where there's like a veil of two lives. And I was just thinking you've had like two both are amazing. Two paths, right. Yeah. Both were very both had their own pains, their own hardships, yeah. their own yeah. but also their own joys, their own beauty. Mm. And, um, and so that, I mean, that's really what I've had to wrestle with. I don't know. There's this, uh, researcher in Arizona. I think her name is Mary Frances O'Connor. She's like a grief researcher, but she studies the brain in grief. Mm. And she talks about how one of the things that we tend to do in grief is we go over, um, counterfactuals which is basically mm. what ifs, what ifs, what if I would have been there? What if yep, this would have, what if? And she says the problem with counterfactuals is that there are an endless amount mm. of them. Oh my gosh. And so you can spend your entire life, if you're not careful, yep. going over all of the would have, could have, should have yep. counterfactuals, imagining every different outcome and all that is ultimately is just anxiety and control. Yes. But you like right. your your therapist said, your counselor said, you you really you cannot change it. What's right. done, it's done. It's right. done. It's done. And so I, I, I think that is a a hard lesson for us to learn because obviously there is an instinct in us that wants yeah. to replay and rechange and rehash and re But the devastating thing that that does for our soul is does remove us from like it does living the present life and and i think like you said looking to the future and trusting that like yeah. okay but it is in the new heavens it is undone and so i yes. can rest i can trust i can you know and that's one of the beautiful hopes of the gospel really yep, yep. um that's and so, so true. i just i think this question of how do you move forward. I think you're exactly right, Davey. You can't pretend like that pain doesn't exist. Yeah. And you have to, you really, you have to grieve it fully, constantly, to. as long as you need to. And like you said, right. you also have to grieve the, not just the loss, but the like, the dreams, yep. the, pa the, you know, I think about, I, I've probably said this on here before, but I think about a friend of mine who lost her son. And one of her big griefs was like, Every Halloween, she had little cute Halloween costumes picked out. Mm. So every Halloween, it's a new, he, I'm not getting to dress him in the lion costume yep. this year. I'm not getting, yep. you know, I mean, and you have to give yourself permission to do that. Right, right. And yet, like, she's gone on to have more and more children and had many yeah. beautiful memories with them. And so, like you said, it's it, it's the both, the both and, the already not yet. Um, yeah. Learning yeah, to kind it, of surrender in that is is God's invitation. 
that's exactly the right word, Aubrey. It's surrender, mm. right? G- grief processes, we'll call it acceptance, but it's really surrender. It's surrendering to the sovereignty of the Lord. And I think there's a difference between dwelling on the past and grieving the past. Dwelling yeah. on the past dwelling on the past is where you sit and live in a shallow pool mm. of what happened. Mm. Grieving and lamenting what happened is where you go really deep into it and you yeah. lean, lean, lean into it and you yeah. grieve it and you mourn it and you lament it and you let those feelings cascade over you and through you and around you. But ultimately that depth brings you up to back to the surface of almost like a different pool. Like you're moving into a different space yeah, and not just dwelling in the shallow end of this, you know, past okay. pool. And so yeah. uh, what you mentioned right there, Aubrey, with that, you know, um, the what ifs, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I know we're gonna. I know we're reserving another t- another time after I've done some processing to talk about the trial. But that is one of the most. Once that's one of the biggest things that reemerged as I learned more details of what happened that day. Wow. Because in in kind of a for the first time in a very um, zoomed out perspective, I saw all of the things that happened that morning that led to the next thing that led to the next thing that led to the next mm-hmm. thing. And all of even some even some things that I did right and remember you know and, and we'll talk about some more but like it caused that that what I thought was a scar that I had settled mm. to reemerge and cause me to start asking again what if what if what if wow. I'd done this what if I'd done this what if I'd wow. done this and and that surprised me because I thought I had settled that wow and in fact there's an entire book in or an entire chapter in nothing is wasted the book called what if right mm. where i talk about having to settle those very things mm. and um and that reemerged and that surprised yeah. me and um so i'm having so that all that's to say is that like even when you feel like you've settled something it doesn't mean it's not yeah. going to reemerge and you're going to yeah. have to settle it again yeah 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 so wow. anyways yeah wow good stuff from jerry sitzer obviously uh lots Lots to keep talking about. We are, as you know, or if you're new to the podcast, we're really passionate about not just having these conversations with you, but actually guiding you through transformation. We believe firmly that uh, we want to partner with you to take back your story. And part of that means to learn how to to grieve well and hold your grief well, and at the same time, look for what God has for you in the present and in the future. And so we'd love to invite you to go to nothingiswasted.com slash community. We have our community platform there. We have our community plus plus platform there. All kinds of resources, tools, ways that we want to equip and walk with you through your own grief journey. Yeah, yeah. We'd also love to encourage you to engage with us on Instagram. You can follow our ministry at Nothing Is Wasted Ministries. Follow me at Davy Blackburn. Follow Aubrey at Obsamp. And we want to thank Sleeping at Last for providing all the music for the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. If you're new and you're like, man, what is this music? I love this. It's Sleeping at Last. So go and download his music anywhere where music can be downloaded and streamed. Um, we also love to invite you to um, review on iTunes, as we mentioned earlier. Subscribe to the podcast on on you know Apple. I guess it's not called iTunes anymore. Apple Podcast. Apple Podcast, right? <laughs> and we're on YouTube. So if you're Yay! listening to this and you're like, wait, I didn't know you're on YouTube. Yeah, we're on YouTube. So go and follow us on YouTube so that you can make sure you get updates every time that this podcast releases. Next week, we have a conversation with Blake Williams, mm-hmm. uh, who is a, a pastor or, or, you know, a pastor on staff um, who lost his wife to suicide in 2021. So, mm-hmm. so not too long ago. Yeah. And so um, I know many of you guys have been touched, uh, impacted by 
uh, a loss by suicide. And so you're going to want to definitely listen to this conversation and lean into it because he's got some really, really just good, fresh perspective on his own journey in this. So let's take a listen to a little clip from my conversation with Blake Williams. I've yet to meet a person, I think, who has uh, not been exposed to suicide in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Whether it was a close relative, a friend, um, a, a friend of a friend who they then try to help console the friend who lost someone. So it just happens too prevalently to pretend it doesn't happen, to try yeah. to sugarcoat it. it. It is what it is. It's a horrible thing. And I'm so thankful for Suicide Awareness Month and, and things that people out there are trying to do to help shed light onto it. I participated in an, an out-of-the-darkness overnight walk years ago, 20 miles in downtown Chicago. And they, they say we do it in the night and we finish it at dawn because we're trying to bring suicide into the light. So many people just mm-hmm. try to hide it. Oh, it's that embarrassing thing that happened in our family. Let's keep it quiet. Let's brush it on the rug. And that doesn't do a service to anyone. 